Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It is really good to see you this morning. I love that last song as it leads into 1 John chapter 2, because that's really the heartbeat of John. He wants us to remember how great God's love is for us, his mercy is for us, and that they cover all of our sins. So this morning, I would like to take you on a time journey. Back in time, the year is 1672. We are located about 50 miles north of London, and we are standing outside a prison waiting for the release of one of the prisoners. He's been in prison for 12 years. He was incarcerated at the age of 32. He's now 44, and his name is John Bunyan. You would probably know him as the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? It is, interestingly, the second most popular book in history besides the Bible. It's been translated into into over 200 languages. People all over the world throughout time have read John's book, Pilgrim's Progress. But John was not always well-known or an influential writer. In fact, John was born into a very poor home. His dad was a uh, tinker, uh, a metal worker. They didn't make a lot of money. They would hawk their wares from town to town, and John was born into that family, and he learned that trade, and he discovered very quickly that uh, life could be very difficult. Uh, He did learn to read and write, but he got no further education to better himself. At the age of 15, his mother died, and one month later, his older sister died, and one month later, his dad remarried. And so he's going through a lot of transition. One year later, at the age of 16, he's drafted into the parliamentary army of Oliver Cromwell, who is fighting against the King of England. And for two years, he is fighting, and uh, he is in, in the military, and he says by his own admission, he had few equals in cursing, lying, and blaspheming the name of God. Army life was not easy for him. A few years later, he married an equally poor woman who had a godly dad, though, and the dad as a dowry gave her two books to take into the marriage. The first was the book, The Practice of Piety, How to Be Holy. And the second book was The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven. Now, John admits in his journals that when his wife would read these books, he would kind of look over her shoulder and read with her, but these books did nothing to change his heart and his head toward God. He was still this coarse, rough, military guy who was trying to earn a living by being a metal worker. John and his wife had four children. The oldest, Mary, was born blind, and so he's now living with a family challenge in terms of his youngest or his oldest daughter and his younger daughters. But despite all of these challenges, John was somehow profoundly converted to Christianity during the first few years of his marriage. And this was not like a bolt of lightning for John. It was a process of discovery and thinking. And and he writes in his journal that as he went through the scriptures, he could really find no peace, no assurance. He still felt hard-hearted. He still had great doubts. One time, when he did finally feel established in the gospel, what it meant, he suddenly felt this overwhelming sense of darkness. And the thought occurred to him, Sell and part with this most blessed Christ. Let him go, if he will. And he writes, My heart freely consented to that. And for two years, I felt doomed and damned because of it. 
Now keep in mind, this is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, this great book about the Christian journey. He writes in his journal, I felt that this wicked sin of mine might be that unpardonable sin. No one knows the terrors of those days but myself. I felt at hard work now to pray to God because despair was swallowing me up. And then one day, everything changed. He was given a copy of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And he began to read about Galatians and the struggle of faith and how to know God and be certain. And he said, I found my condition in his experience so largely and profoundly handled as if his book had been written right out of my heart. I do prefer this book of Martin Luther upon the Galatians, accepting the Holy Bible, before all the books that ever have I seen as most fit for a wounded conscience. He then became a powerful and popular preacher, and that's when his real troubles began. Ten years later, his wife died. He now has four children, all under the age of nine, one of them blind. And two years later, he was imprisoned by the king of England for preaching without a license. For 12 years, he's in prison. And that is when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. My oldest grandson just celebrated his sixth birthday, and his mom asked for a book for him. This book, Pilgrim's Progress. Now, this is an interesting book, and if we can leave this up for a minute, guys. You notice the characters are all animals. So this is written for children. In fact, the language has been updated, so it's not the old English. And, uh, and so we gave this book to my oldest grandson for his birthday last week. And uh, in it, you see the story of Pilgrim, of uh, Christian. And uh, he's finally got his faith. He's got his suit of armor. And he hears the message of a distant land, a celestial city that is ruled by a kind king, uh, a lion who rules there. And the king invites anyone from the city of destruction where Christian has been living to, uh, to find a better life, to journey to the celestial city, to leave the self-centeredness of this city of destruction and to leave its wicked prince, which is a wolf. This wicked prince violently opposes any desperate attempts to be free of their sins and to seek the king in his city. But Christian desperately wants to go there and have his burden of sin lifted off of his back. But everyone he meets, everyone he knows, says to him, oh, this is a strange tale, it's a, a myth, it's a false hope, it's a delusional image and mirage. Just forget about it. And if you know the story of Pilgrim's Progress, he can't. So the first night after giving this to our oldest grandson, I asked my daughter, can I read the first chapter for him? You know, you guys are going back to uh, home, and I'd love to just sit and read with he and, and my youngest grandson. Oh, yeah, you can read a chapter. So I sat down by the bunk bed with him, and they both nestle in really close. They actually put their elbow on your elbow because they want to be so close, you know, and you're sitting here trying to turn pages like this. And <laughs> we got done with the first chapter, and my birthday grandson says, Grandpa... That was too short. That was only three pages. Read another. And I said, well, it's time for bed. Oh, please, Grandpa. <laughs> we read two more chapters. <laughs> so why are we talking about John Bunyan? Why are we taking time to think about Pilgrim's Progress today? Well, the reason is the story 
that John Bunyan gives us of the city of destruction and the celestial city, of the kind king and the wicked prince, of the presence of another plane of existence beyond what we can see and touch and smell and hear. He says to us, it's real, it's true, and we desperately need this message today in our world. John Bunyan says that, but there was another John, the Apostle John, who in our passage today takes up this story, this theme, and says to us, this is what we as Christians need to know. We need to know absolutely it is true. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I really hope you do, would you open to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, where John says to us, folks, we live in a bifurcated world. We live in a world that has tangibility to it. We can see things and touch them and smell them and hear them and interact with them. That's, that's a very tangible existence. But he says there is another existence, another intangible world that we really need to be aware of. We need to understand. We need to believe it's true. And that there is a wicked prince over here in this tangible world, and his name is Satan. In fact, John writes in 1 John 5, at the end of the book we're in, about that individual and about the kind king. Let me read it to you real quick. 1 John 5, 18, John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, but that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see, John got this. He knew it was true that there was this bifurcated world, the tangible and the intangible. And in these verses today, he says to us, here is how you can know what is happening in the world today and make progress as pilgrims in this world. There's one truth he wants to give us today. It's at the very end of this section where he says, if you will do this one thing, you will persevere, you will continue, you will make it to the celestial city because of God's work in you and God's work for you. So let's take a minute and pray. We're going to start at verse 18 and look at three aspects of what John wants to say to us this morning. Heavenly Father, I am so glad this section of John is, is actually here for us at this point in time. I'm so thankful that, that John, who is in his uh, later years, can look back and say, the journey that I have taken as a pilgrim has been hard, it's been challenging, I have found opposition from Satan and the world and my own flesh, but God, you have helped me to persevere, and, and I want to pass that on to the next generation. I want them to know that it is possible to continue to follow Christ no matter what. And I want them to know how to do that. So, Father, as we get into this passage, open our eyes. Help our hearts to be soft. And help us, like John Bunyan and John the Apostle, to have a sense of where to go and how to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John begins in verse 18, he says, children, a very affectionate term, it is the last hour. Now, it's interesting, this is the only place in the New Testament you see that phrase, it is the last hour. Now, John is a guy who's in his 80s, early 90s, probably felt like it was getting to be the end of time. Six other places you have the phrase, last days, but here he says, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming. 
There is one who will come who will oppose God during the tribulation period of time, and, uh, and you've heard that he is coming. But so now, many antichrists, small a, have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What he's saying to us is, this is the last hour of world history. And the presence of many antichrists proves it. So he's writing this in 90 AD. And he says, we can know it is the last hour of God's great clock of world history. When humanity's control ends and God's begins again, he says it's the last hour of that, and we know it because so many people are leaving the church. Interesting that even in his day, this was a phenomenon where people would come into the church, they'd be a part of the church for a while, and then they would just disappear. And he looks at this and he says, hey, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are leaving because they no longer believe that Jesus is God. And they are also leaving because there are other things, other things than Jesus that are catching their fancy and tugging at their hearts. So they don't stay because they weren't actually part of us. They've rejected Jesus as being fully God. They've uh, replaced Jesus with other substitutes. And so John calls them small a, anti-Christs, meaning either pushing back against Jesus as God or taking other things in to substitute, to replace Jesus as God. And so they don't stick around. If you go online, you can find multiple examples of this happening in our world today. Uh, and, and even among Christian leaders, you have leaders like uh, the Hillsong songwriter Marty Sampson who wrote, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely, genuinely losing my faith. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. Joshua Harris, one of the authors that I've read over the years, I've used his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He was the pastor of a pretty good church uh, in Maryland, pretty good-sized church. And uh, he divorced his wife, and then he announced that he was leaving the faith. And he says in his writing, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. We hear that a lot today. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements, he writes, I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Paul Maxwell, who was the well-known writer of Desiring God, posted on his Instagram feed, what I really miss is connection with people. What I've discovered is that I'm ready to connect again. And I'm kind of ready to not be angry anymore. I love you guys. I love all the friendships and support I've built here. And I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore. So we could go on and on. And from leadership on down to the lay level, there are people in our culture today who are stepping away from God, some of them because they see how Christians act, but others because of their disbelief in Jesus as God and the Christian faith. John says to us this morning, this is a trend that is only going to increase as we get toward the end of human history. In fact, he says, this is the sign of the end of time. Many people are coming out of the church. He says, there are many antichrists, but notice they are going out from us. They are leaving us because they weren't really part of who we were. 
And so John writes this to us for two major reasons. Number one, he says, I don't want you to be surprised by that happening. And I don't want you to be discouraged by it either. And secondly, he says, I want you to be warned by it. Hang on to Jesus. Make him your focus, not how people act, not how the church operates, not whether things become political. Look to Jesus Christ. Hang on to Jesus. H.A. Ironside, who was one of the great preachers of the past, he's called the preacher's preacher, wrote this about this passage. He says, the hardest thing in the world, the hardest thing in the world to do is to attempt to live a Christian life and meet the obligations of a Christian when you have no Christian life to live. One of the beasts of the field might as well set himself up in a mansion and try to live the life of a millionaire human being as for an unregenerated sinner to try to live the life of a Christian. John 3.3, our same author, says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Ironside says, oh, may each one of us search our hearts in the presence of God and ask the questions, have I really faced my sins in the light of the cross of Christ? Have I truly turned in repentance, owning my guilt, acknowledging my iniquity, and fled for refuge to the hope set before me in the gospel? Have I the evidence of a regenerate soul? Do I love the brethren? Do I love the commandments of God? Is the word sweet to me? Do I delight to feed upon it? Is it my joy to serve him? Or, after all, are these things to me but a weariness of the flesh? He says in conclusion, I am persuaded... And I say it in all charity that there are tens of thousands of people today whose names are on the church membership rolls who have never had their names enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life. Here were these people going on with the Christian company in 1 John, but, says the Spirit of God, they were not of us. And so by and by they went out, and when outside they became the worst opponents of those who stood for the truth of God. He nails it for us. Where is our heart? Where is our faith? What is it based on? What are we looking to as we move forward in this bifurcated world? The ultimate evidence of authentic Christianity is endurance. It is a pilgrim's progress in the faith. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We don't lose our salvation, but we need to make sure we've got it to begin with, is what John is saying to us. Secondly, John says in verses 20 through 23, the Holy Spirit helps us to embrace Christ. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I don't know that I can do that on my own. I know my own flesh, right? I know my struggles. I know the sins I'm tempted with. I know the failures I have. I mean, how can I do that, endure to the end? Well, he says here the Holy Spirit is what helps us with that. Notice in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? Who is the word here in Greek is pseudo. Who's the pretender? 
but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. There are people in the church who will be a part of everything that goes on, but in their hearts they say, Jesus is not God. He's not the Messiah. He's not the anointed one. I just I can't believe that. He says, that is the pretender. This is the Antichrist. He do, who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You see how, how binding that is? He says, Jesus and the Father are so connected, so one, that if you deny the Son, you, you lose the Father. But if you embrace the Son, if you confess the Son, you get the Father as well. So the indwelling Holy Spirit, pictured here as this anointing, is what he's talking about. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, this word. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who has sealed us and given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. As a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. I have him within me as God's pledge that you will make it to the end. The question for us is, how connected are we to the work of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives? It's amazing. John writes here, no one else needs to teach us this truth. Folks, you and I don't act, you don't need actually me to be up here telling you this truth. What he says here is the Holy Spirit within you affirms this truth of the bifurcated world and the reality of God the Son and the reality of Satan and the fight that is going on between them. The Holy Spirit affirms this as he indwells us. I love how John writes in his gospel, and you really should compare these as we go through 1 John, the gospel of John and 1 John, because he says in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So as you study the word of God, as I get into the word of God, the Holy Spirit's role is so important because he's going to talk to us about what the Word of God means and how to apply it. In fact, John uses a very interesting word for know here. There's two words in the Greek language for know. We've already looked at one of them in the first part of uh, 1 John, which is gnosko, to basically uh, know by experience. In fact, we'll put a definition up on the screen of both of these, gnosko and oida. He's already used gnosko, which is this ongoing process. It's, it's very personal, it's experiential, it's intimate, it's up close. It's to know someone. This is the word used for people who are married to each other, knowing each other well. He doesn't use that word right here when he talks about knowing. He uses oida, which is a complete knowledge. It's not a process. It's something that you know. It's observable even from a distance. It can be remote. And it's to know something, to know the how of how to live. So when he says to us, the Holy Spirit is helping you to know He's saying completely, observably, distantly. You don't have to experience it up front to know how this works. And this is so significant here because his point is that we who are truly saved are people who can discern from afar through observation the complete truth about how to discern deception. We do not have to be deceived by the lies, by the pseudo things of the world by those who would come alongside of us and say, that isn't really true. You shouldn't believe that. Just get along in the world. He says, we can know this. In common terms, 
These believers to whom he writes knew how to spot a spiritual knockoff, something that just wasn't right. And I, I brought with, with me this morning four examples of knockoffs in our worlds. I'm going to put them up on the screen one at a time, and I want you to tell me what the real thing is, not the knockoff. <laughs> What's the real thing? Starbucks. When Lisa and I led a tour to Israel a few years ago, and we're hopefully going again in 2025, in Bethlehem, there is a symbol, just, well, it's actually the actual Starbucks symbol. And what it says is stars and bucks. So it makes, if you don't know the real thing, you go, oh, it's a Starbucks, right? Here's the second one. <laughs> Somewhere in the world, somebody is brushing their teeth with crust, which just doesn't sound good, does it? What's the real thing? Crest, all right? Let's look at the next one. Any of you ladies buy Arm & Hatchet, right, for your cleaning process? Of course not. It's Arm & Hammer, right? Let's look at one more. Prongles. Man, I love prongles. What's the real thing? Pringles. You guys are so good. You're so educated. You're so, so oided, right? Now, here's the thing. You do not have to have bought a cup of cup coffee from Starbucks to know that that was not Starbucks. You know the symbol just by looking at it, right? You don't have to brush your teeth with crest or crust to know that crest is the real thing. You don't have to clean your home with arm and hammer. You don't have to eat a Pringle to know those are fake because you can observe them. You can know concretely, not a process. You just go, no, that's not the real thing. I would never buy that. You know by oida. And John takes that whole concept and he says the same thing is true of spiritual knockoffs, of things in our world that present themselves as a spiritual idea, as something really that will develop your soul, as something that will carry you forward in your faith. And you have to be discerning by the power of the Holy Spirit to say, wait a second, that's not real, because I know the truth. The spiritual knockoffs in our world claim Jesus is not God. And you can look at any conversation, any faith, any publication, any message, and the first question you need to ask to anyone who comes to your door is, what do you believe about the deity of Jesus Christ? And if you get an answer that says, well, he's a great prophet, well, he's, he's certainly a good man, he was a great teacher, but is he God? Is he fully God in the flesh? Well, I mean, we should probably talk about that at some point, but that's a knockoff. It is not true. John says in verse 22, look at this, who is the liar? Who is the pseudo-Christian, the, imita the, the imitation, the fake, the perversion? It is the one who denies, disavows, rejects that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the king, the prophet, the priest, God in the flesh. And it's so simple here. And he says, you'll know this through the indwelling Holy Spirit, so that the Spirit affirms to us that Jesus is so totally God the Son that to deny him is to not deny God himself. And notice that if we deny God the Son, we cannot have the Father. And if we cannot have the Father, we cannot have eternal life. So we can play the game for a while. We can imagine that 
we are in the kingdom of God for a period of time, but the reality comes down to this belief through the anointing of the Holy Spirit to tell us that's a knockoff, this is the real thing. So what do we do with this? Well, John has a final point for us here. And in essence, he says, the solution is to renew your experience of the Spirit's role and control in your life. Be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a command, by the way. That is something we need to do on a daily basis. We need to confess any known sin that would keep us from hearing his voice within, pushing him into a corner, quenching the fire of the Holy Spirit. We're warned against that. Don't do that. Because you need to have times where you can hear his voice, you can listen to the truth, you can humbly invite him to speak into your life once again. And that produces endurance. Here's John's last point. Verses 24 through 27, John says, Let the Holy Spirit and his truth abide in you. And you remember at the beginning of this message, we said there's one thing that if you will do this, you will endure. I want you to notice how often in this last section he uses the word abide. Let me read it for you. Let, and by the way, this is the command part. This is something you and I must do. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he's made to us, eternal life, which is not just future, it is here and now, the transformative power of God in our lives. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And folks, there are people in our world today, oftentimes in churches, who are trying to deceive us about the truth of what goes on in our bifurcated world. Verse 27, but the anointing, the Holy Spirit that you received from him, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and it's no pseudo, it's no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So the primary work, according to John, of every Christian is to abide in the word of God and to abide in Jesus. That's our job. And he says, if we abide in the Son, we get the Father, we have this connection with the Creator and our Savior. If we abide in the Son and the Father, we get eternal life. And when the Holy Spirit abides in us, we gain this truthful perspective on life that gives us a, a confidence and a joy, a strength and a hope. So John urges us this morning, make the choice. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. And he helps us to do that. I am so thankful to God that um, we do not need to plead for the Holy Spirit to indwell us. The scripture is clear that the moment we believed in Christ, we were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ as a child of God and into the church. This happened in a moment when we believed. We don't need a second blessing from God. He is already fully here. The Holy Spirit is not partially here and partially not. No, we have the fullness of the Spirit. And we don't need anyone to admonish us about this truth. The Spirit does it for us. So really the question comes down to how do we abide? This is also a very interesting term in the Greek language. It is the word meno, which, re, which means to remain, to stay in one place, to hunker down and refuse to be moved. 
It's a beautiful word that is used repeatedly in John's writings, but he essentially says to us, stay in Jesus. Keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, on Jesus. Don't look around at what everybody else is doing or how they're failing or how they're hurting others. Look at Jesus. So let me practicalize this for us. We see this at movie theaters all the time, this idea of abiding. So you go to a movie, the end of the movie, what happens? Some people get up right away and they leave, right? They're going to the bathroom, they're going home, they're going to dinner, they've got a variety of things that are on their minds. But other people minnow. Other people remain, they abide, they put their recliner back and they're still sitting there going, I want to see the credits. This is my family, by the way. <laughs> we love to see who had a part in the movie. Oftentimes we go, where was that filmed? And of course, that's at the very end of the credits, right? But sometimes, at the very end of a movie, is what they call the post-credit scene, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? In the industry, it's called a stinger. And so we're sitting there going, I wonder if there's anything else to come. You know, I'd, I'd love to know what the next sequel is going to be, you know? This all started back in 1979. Stingers became popular with the Mupp Muppet movie. So if you've ever seen the Muppet movie... You remember that Kermit is uh, heading out to sunny Los Angeles to seek his career in show business. And along the way, he meets all of these other colorful, crazy characters. And uh, they join him on this thrilling journey to Tinseltown. Now, at the end of the movie, you see the very first stinger that was popularized. There were some before that that were just kind of, they, they just melted away into the mist of history. But this one became the marker of what to do. And so at the end of the movie, you see this uh, post-credit scene where the characters are, are seen watching their story unfold while they're sitting in a theater, right? And they're joking with each other as the credits roll, and they're encouraging the audience, you guys, to wait until the very end before leaving, because this is the very first thing. Hey, don't leave. There's something more. And then at the very end, Animal, the drummer, one of my all-time favorites, leaps up and hollers at all of the viewers, Go home! And he says, goodbye. And he falls to the ground over all the excitement. And that's the end of it. Now, why do we bring this up? The point is this, that the folks who stay after the movie are always looking for something more. What's coming next? How does this all work out? What was put into this movie? I want to know everybody who had a part in it. I want to see and know more. Those who leave really don't have an interest in that. But those who remain have made a conscious choice to abide to remain. And this is what God calls us to, to remain in the church. Because God, guys and gals, there's something more. There's a sequel to our story that is written in scripture. God is going to be doing so much more, and we get to learn about all of the players in scripture and how this works itself out. So God wants you and I to remain. This is our number one task. The number one thing the Holy Spirit's wanting to do for us is help us to remain, to abide in Christ. John 15, you might want to go home and read that this week. John 15 is the parallel passage to this passage. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 4. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. It's the pseudo. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not connected. The sap is not producing anything, so there's no vitality. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And and listen to the next phrase in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And here's the end of this message for you this morning. John simply says, as he writes in 1 John 2 and in John 15, there are four important things that mark an abiding Christian. So you might want to just write these down. I apologize, I don't have them on the screen for you this morning, but I'll go slow. Here they are. The four things that mark an abiding Christian. Number one, just as the branch benefits from all that the vine is and gives, so also we must receive all that Jesus is and gives. There has to be a vital connection between who he is and what he does in the life of a Christian. So abiding Christians will know they are children of God. Abiding Christians will be nourished. They'll be satisfied by the bread of life. Abiding Christians will rest in his care, letting him produce the fruit through them. You ever seen a branch produce fruit? What they don't do is go, fruit. Branches don't do that on their own. What happens is the sap of God flows through a Christian's life. And what happens is you go, there's fruit. There is an impact on others around me. There is an influence in my world today in a variety of ways. This is not just evangelism. It is one of the things. But it's so much more. It's a joyful spirit in the midst of difficulty. It is a love for a person who has offended them. It is an appreciation for the work of God in nature. It is so much. And so an abiding Christian knows these things and they savor his love. That's number one. Number two, just as sap flows from the vine to the branch, so also God's word flows from Jesus to us. So we have to read and hear and trust in and act on what God has to say to us in the word of God. This is, folks, this is why being in the word of God on a regular daily basis is so vital. It is the sap of God. It is the truth of God, the word of God that is flowing into your life and it produces the fruitfulness. That's number two. Number three, just as this connection produces the fruit, so also an abiding Christian will produce things of lasting value for others. We touched a little bit on that with number two, but the reality is abiding Christians are not barren. They are not uninvolved. They are not without an influence and an impact on the world around them. So we have to look at our lives and say, what am I doing with my Christian faith? Am I making progress? Am I impacting others around me? Am I influencing my neighbors? Am I helping to develop the minds and character, mentoring others, as we said last week, in different chairs? What am I doing with my faith? Because the abiding Christian is not an isolated individual. They are so connected to Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and to His people. And lastly, just as the vineyard owner trims back fruitful branches to make them even more productive, so also an abiding Christian can expect God to prune back their lives through painful, providential circumstances in life so that we will become more and more like Jesus. My wife and I grow alala berries. Anybody ever heard of alala berries? Okay, some of you have. That's good. They are generational. My father-in-law and my mother-in-law, she's with the Lord now, and he's in his late, mid-late 80s, uh, started these alala berries at their home in Escondido. Rich, 
juicy, sweet berries. And so when Lisa and I got our first home, I went over to my father-in-law and I said, Hey, Dad, could I get some cuttings off of your alala berries? Oh, yeah, sure, I'm happy to do that. And we planted them at our home in Carlsbad. And we sold that home to come up here. You know what we brought with us? Alala berries, the same ones. They are now producing in our backyard. I took a picture, sent it to my mom, and it, it looks like popcorn just all over the plant. They're so productive. And they're starting to turn red, and then they'll turn dark uh, black. My younger daughter came to me, and she said, Dad, could I get some cuttings of those alala berries? She lives in Redlands. She planted them in her backyard. She sent me a picture last week of her alala berries that are actually producing now. The point is... To get that kind of fruitfulness, you have to cut them back. So every fall, I go to those vines, and they get cut back to a, just, just some of the stalks. No leaves, no fruit, just the stalks. And you should hear them complain, right? <laughs> what are you doing? We like our leaves. We like our productivity. No, to be fruitful this next year, you have to be cut back. And that is why I have this popcorn look on my alolaberry bush. Hundreds and hundreds of them coming on. Because I know that if I don't do that, they just go all over the yard, and there's no productivity at all. In fact, yesterday was my day to prune back some more of the suckers. And I said to them as I was cutting them, sucker! <laughs> right? Because those are not going to produce the fruit. Folks, when you and I go through life as a Christian, it is not going to be a bed of roses. It's not going to be easy, because God providentially wants you to grow in maturity. He wants you to develop more fruit. And so he will providentially allow circumstances in your life that you push back against. You say, I don't need that. What are you doing? I thought you were a God who loved me. He goes, yes, I do. I want you to be abiding in me. I want you to have the fruitfulness that comes from that abiding. So abiding Christians will have God-given opportunities for greater growth and usefulness in the kingdom of God as they go through these challenging moments. Because here's the thing, this, is, this world, this life is not about the tangible. Satan controls that. This life as a Christian is about the intangible, the progress as a pilgrim toward the celestial city. And how can I advance the kingdom of God in my life through my abiding in Jesus Christ? That is the issue for a Christian. If we have any other attitude, we are in the middle hanging on to both. And sometimes we're not even there we're over here and we don't know it. And that's why John writes this passage. So John tells us here, more and more as you look down the road, as you are part of a church, you will see people leave. And oftentimes, it is because they are no longer convinced. They are deconstructed about their faith in Christ. They've got their eyes off of him. They're living by the flesh. They are simply doing what they feel is right, and that satisfies. Not everyone, but there will be those who will, and they will substitute other things for Jesus. And he says to us, we have very little time left. This is the last hour. Now, he wrote that in 90 A.D., how close to the end of God's clock are we today? In fact, the word hour there is eschata. It's the very last thing in line. It's the last kid getting on the school bus. It's the end. We're almost there. 
And if we want to continue in Christ, what do we have to do? We have to let the Holy Spirit abide in us, have control in our lives. We need to take the Word of God and immerse ourselves in it and let us teach us about the Son of God. And we need to remain in faithfulness to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this uh, passage this week has been a reminder to me, and I hope to all of us, that I have a job to do. And that is by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the loving presence of your word in my life, I need to remain. I need to stick around and continue to focus on the sequel of what you're doing, what is going to happen, how I can enjoy it and be a part of it. And God, may we as Christians keep our eyes not on the world. That belongs to Satan. Not on the church. That is your bride. But Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And let his spirit truly guide us, this truth, this knowing that he gives us within of what is right and what is wrong, and help us to live by it. And God, as we do that, we just pray that we would sense the wonder and the joy and the power of walking with Jesus, and that in the end, we would be able to, with Christian, enter the celestial city with joy, knowing we have fought the good fight and we have walked the walk, and that you are faithful. So we celebrate that this morning. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.